Good morning, good morning. Man, it's so good to see everybody. Go and look at the person on your left, the person on your right, maybe the one you love the most, all right? Tell them you're looking good. Go ahead and tell them. Yeah. Man, hey, out of all the places you could be on the planet, you've chosen to be at First Baptist Simpson Upstate Church. Man, we're so excited. And you may be new, all right? I know that we had the big event a couple Saturdays ago, and maybe you're still kind of connecting from uh, Egg Venture and that kind of thing. Let me just go and say kind of we're thrilled uh, that you're here, and you may be new to the area. Uh, maybe you're one of the 40,000 people who moved in yesterday. Amen. A lot of folks moving in, and, uh, and so we just want to welcome you here. Hey, Upstate Church family, let's welcome all our guests, all right? Man, we're so glad y'all are here. And those who may be uh, watching at home or en route somewhere on a trip, uh, we're glad that you're with us too. Go and take your Bibles, turn in, turn on your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Going to be in Luke chapter 22. And uh, today we are in the Garden of Gethsemane. We've been walking through the entire book of Luke since Christmas. And uh, man, next Sunday's the end, all right? So today... If you remember last Sunday, we were in the upper room, had communion, the Lord's Supper, Last Supper. Um, Today, we're in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to talk about some really sobering thoughts there. And then uh, Jesus is actually arrested here in the garden. Friday night at 6.30, Steve mentioned Good Friday service. First time ever that our church had a Good Friday service. All campuses are coming together Friday night. So, man, don't miss it, 6.30. It's going to be, I hope and pray this place is packed as we contemplate, meditate, and remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. And so we'll be doing that in Luke. And then a week from today, um, Resurrection Sunday, man, we're going to come ready to celebrate um, Jesus who is alive from the dead. And, uh, hey, let me just say everybody. I know Steve mentioned invite cards. Man, we should have everybody. We had 2,500 in attendance last Sunday on all campuses. We should have 5,000. Everybody should bring one, all right? Everybody should bring one on Easter Sunday. So hand out 20 invitations, man. And one of those friends or family members will come with you next Sunday. And uh, it's one of the easiest opportunities for you to connect people with Jesus. So let me encourage you to do that. Luke chapter 22. Let's go and pick up in verse 39. And we're going to read through this story. And then we're going to kind of back up. Talk a little bit about the context of the garden and what what we see there in the Garden of Gethsemane and what that means and how it it teaches us a lot about what Jesus did. Let's start in verse 39. Luke 22, 39. And Jesus came out and went, as was his custom. This was something he did often. This was something he did on a regular basis. He came out and he went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when Jesus came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if, it, if, if you're willing, please remove the cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him and being in agony. Would you say that word with me? Agony. Say it again. Agony. And being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly. 
And his sweat became as great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when Jesus rose from prayer, he came back to the disciples and he found them sleeping for sorrow. I think it's important. We pick on the disciples an awful lot of times. They're sleeping, certainly, but they're not sleeping for laziness. They're sleeping for sorrow. Jesus had just told them that he's going to be taken away from them and killed. And he's going to leave them. I mean, they're... they're absolutely exhausted from sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you don't enter into temptation. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the 12 was leading them. He drew near to Jesus and he kissed him uh, or to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? This was a sign, obviously, uh, to those who were with him that he was Jesus. And when those who were around him saw that would follow, what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? In other words, do you want us to defend you? You want us to go ahead and fight for you? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now we know from other passages that this is Peter who pulls out a sword and strikes Malchus. But Jesus said, no more of this. Basically to Peter, Cut it out, dude. <laughs> you know, cut it out. I didn't, I, I didn't want you to do that. Don't defend me. Don't defend me. This is my purpose. This is the will of the Father. No more of this. And he touched his ear, the ear of Malchus, and he healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay a hand on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. And so what, what he was saying was, man, you, you could have come to me in broad daylight when I was surrounded by people. But you come to me in the darkness when I'm all alone in this garden. So in this passage, man, that's a passage that, look, if you've been in church much in your life, you probably heard the story of the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, goodness, if you've even seen The Passion of the Christ, the movie, one of the most powerful scenes is the scene there as Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the moment after the Last Supper. So Jesus has left the upper room and now he is, he's gone to the garden to pray. And as he's praying, He's in agony already. Now, this is long before he's being beaten. This is long before he's being drugged through the streets. He's not having to carry a cross yet to Calvary. This is long before the Roman soldiers are nailing the the nails into his hands and his feet. Yet, he feels agony already nonetheless. So this agony, this cup that's mentioned here... Let this cup pass from me. It's important we kind of understand what the cup is. And we'll talk about that as we walk through it. But even beyond that, we need to understand kind of the garden, the context. What, what, is this, what is this garden? John calls it a garden. Now, Luke doesn't specifically use the word garden. But John kind of alludes to and lets us know this is, at least in uh, uh, 2,000 years ago, what, what a garden would have looked like. Now, in our context, we think of like flowers. When we think of a garden, we think of beautiful colors. It's not really that way. So in Israel, even today, you'll see a picture of the Garden of Gethsemane today, one that I took with my own iPhone, all right? And uh, this is what the Garden of Gethsemane looks like today. 
And uh, just leave it on that first picture for just a minute. And you can see a couple flowers and stuff like that. But who knows if those colorful flowers were there 2,000 years ago. But there is something we do know about olive trees. Olive trees actually live over 1,000 years. And that's crazy. In our context, we, we like, what? Are you serious? So olive trees, uh, very common for them to live over a thousand years. And it's thought that about three or four of the trees in the garden of Gethsemane today, still in the garden, are actually over 2,000 years ago, which means these trees were actually in the garden when Jesus was praying this prayer. Now, here's what we don't know. We don't know exactly where Jesus was because experts would say that this garden wasn't just the size it is today. Today, it's, it's less than a city block. So it's a pretty small garden. I would say it's smaller maybe even than our sanctuary in here today. And so the Garden of Gethsemane was, is now not, not massive, it's, but it is filled with olive trees, which is significant. I want to tell you some uh, interesting things in a moment about olive trees. But back then, experts say olive trees would have filled the side of the Mount of Olives. And to put this in perspective, too, because literally as we stood there in the Garden of Gethsemane, I've now went four times. I love it. I can't get enough. I try to go back as often as possible, me and Amy. We love it. But when you're standing in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's so crazy. You're literally just only a road separates you from the Temple Mount. And so it's so um, it's just so real, man. It's so you can read stories about about it, but when you're standing there and you recognize how real it is, that this is a real place Jesus literally was praying the night before his death. And when you're standing there in in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's so interesting because you're looking at the Eastern Gate. And many of you, especially those who love eschatology, probably already know that the Eastern Gate is where Jesus is coming back. But here's what's so cool, I say, I think it's cool about it. So the Temple Mount is actually now uh, in charge, or or I guess you could say under the authority of uh, uh, Muslims. And so in, in years past, they actually, because they know that Christians believe that Jesus will come back through the Eastern Gate, guess what they did? They sealed the Eastern Gate filled with concrete. Now that may sound like not a big deal, but it's 12 feet wide. So they legitimately filled the eastern gate 12 solid feet of concrete kind of trying to just say ha ha christians you know we've sealed the gate that you think your savior will come back i just think it's funny that they think somehow 12 feet of concrete is going to keep jesus away you know what i'm saying like he's going to come back and you know he's going to split the eastern skies and come back get to the gate and go oh doggone you know i was concrete Who would have guessed, you know? I guess the prophecy's not true. No, Jesus is going to bust the gate wide open. That's what's going to happen, yeah. And so, yeah, I I love that. And so that's that's the picture here. We're in this garden. But understand, the garden would have been in sight of the temple. So here's all this is right together. And Jesus is agonizing as he's... He's about to be taken away, and he knows it. I mean, this is God in flesh. Jesus knows full well that he's about to be betrayed, arrested, convicted of crimes that he did not do, and punished for you. Hung on a cross for my sins in your place. This is what Jesus chose. He chose the nails that you deserved and that I deserved. 
And so, so this garden, what, what is it like? I mean, it's interesting to think about olive trees really for just a moment. I know if you're sitting here and go, olive trees? I didn't know I was coming to church to learn about olive trees. Olive trees are really cool. So I'm going to show you a couple more pictures. Show the second picture for a second. So this is, the, in my opinion, the most beautiful olive tree in the garden. And it's just gorgeous. But if you zoom in, the third picture shows you that there's, there's old bark and then there's new sprouts. And this is the super significant thing about that. And you may be like me. I'm not, I'm not a plant dude at all, all right? But this makes me want to run the aisles of a Baptist church. I'm telling you. Here's why. Because the cool thing about an olive tree is that in its death, it produces life. So here's the cool thing about 2,000 years old. How can a tree live that long? Well, technically, part of the tree is dead. But as the, the older part of the tree dies, it, it produces, in its death, it produces life. What's that have to do with anything? It has to do with everything. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, is surrounded by olive trees that are all a beautiful picture of him. Because in his death, <laughs> he brings new life. Not only that, but olive trees don't even produce an olive for 20 years. So you don't plant an olive tree for you to gain benefit. Because even in, in our uh, life expectancy, obviously we can't really get this. But back then, people didn't live to be 90 as much, you know? And so back then, you planted an olive tree for not just your kids, but for your children's children. You planted an olive tree for the generations to follow you. And, and even in that, that picture of, of literally over a thousand years, I mean, you, so you're, you're preparing and you're planting for generations to come. And, and here's the deal. When Jesus hung on the cross, he did not just hang on the cross for those who were alive that day, but he, he literally, the, the price that he paid, the death that he died was significant and relevant for all generations. And this is a beautiful picture. So this, as we look at the olive trees, even in this garden, it, it, it helps us understand. And even, even beyond that, we think, again, I love the whole idea of, of in death, uh, the olive tree brings life. In, in death, Jesus brought life to all who would turn from their sin and their self and turn to Jesus. But, but I think that we'll, we'll kind of dive in and even understand more as we think about two characters and another group of characters today. So as we look at these three ideas, we're going to look at two individuals and then one group of people and talk about basically what is characteristic of these people. And as we walk through these three points, it'll help us understand. So if you have your app, this is where we're about to dive into those points. Here's the first thing. We see the first character. I think have to always say, obviously, Jesus is the central character. So let's talk about Jesus. First, we see the agony of Jesus. Here in this passage, specifically verse 43, talks about the agony of Jesus. Now, agony is a word we don't really use an awful lot. And so we know what it means. I think we can, we can define it. But I think most definitions we would use fall short of what we mean here in this passage. It says in 43, And being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Agonizomai is the Greek word. And I know that's super impressive, right? I don't usually do that, but I think that's it. I love just saying agonizomai. Isn't that great? A struggle. This is what it means. A struggle so intense that one might possibly perish 
in it from battle. So the, the word was used when people were about to die. Like he was, he was in agony, such pain. The agony of defeat is something we talk about. It's kind of a common way we use the word agony. But in an interesting way, the paradox of the cross is that this is the agony of victory. Because Jesus was not going to be defeated on the cross. He was going to gain victory. And in the process, in the path to the cross, he is agonizing. Even in the pathway to victory. Jesus knows full well that he will rise from the dead. Yet he is in agony. I think that we've become conditioned to assume that our agony is a sign of weakness. And I don't know, I don't have any idea who this is for. I think in some ways maybe it's for all of us because there have been times I think that I've, I've definitely fit into this category. I think there are times where we think that when we admit our pain, when we admit our struggle, when we admit the agony that we're walking through, that somehow it's a sign of weakness. I, I even think that there may be some in here today who might feel like if they are agonizing over a circumstance they're in, that in some ways people might look, or maybe they're even looking at themselves and saying, you know what, I, I don't know why I can't just have faith. And, and we blame our faith. And sometimes we're just like, why can't I just, why can't I just have faith enough not to agonize? And, and, and I think it's, Helpful. Look, rest in this. Jesus was in agony. This does not mean that Jesus was imperfect. What it means is it's not a sin to agonize. <laughs> I mean, when you're in agony, when you're struggling with something, I man, you've got a terrible report. Man, your loved one is, is, is hurting. Maybe your children's marriage is falling apart. Maybe your marriage is falling apart. Maybe your children or your parents have lost their ever-loving minds. And you're just like, I don't know what to do. And you're agony over it. I mean, you just want it to be fixed. And maybe you, like Jesus, cry out to the Father and say, God, fix it. God, would you fix it? Would you let this cup pass from me? Is there any way, God, if there's any way, Father, that you could help things just get better. God, would you just, but not my will, but yours. Be done. If this is somehow the circumstance I need, God, if you're teaching me, I don't want to, I don't want to run from it, but God, let it pass. Look in that agony. Would you just free yourself up, honestly, in this moment to be okay with the pain? It doesn't make you less of a Christian, because you feel or admit the pain, that's okay. Jesus agonized in the garden. Now there's a good reason that he was agonizing, but here's the deal. I think the significance is that we don't, we don't camp in the valley. We don't, we don't stop in the pain. It doesn't mean we need to live our lives in agony. Don't forget the empty tomb is coming, right? But in, in the agony, in the moment of suffering, in the moment of struggle, it's okay to actually agonize, pressing through the pain. This is what makes you a faithful follower of Jesus. Not that you avoid the pain, not that you go through the pain and act like it doesn't hurt. 
That's not Christian. That's crazy. Amen? When it hurts, it hurts. When things are bad, don't say fine, fine, fine. Amen? How you doing? Fine, fine, fine. That's Baptist code for my life is falling apart. Amen? I mean, look, just be real. It's okay to be real. It's okay to be real. When you're hurting, it's okay to be in pain. But here's the key. This is what separates is pressing through pain is not a sign of spiritual weakness, but strength. We don't stop. We keep going. There is not a God just helped the cup pass from me without saying, not my will, but yours be done. God, Father, whatever you will for my life is what I want. I know that Romans 8, 28 is priceless truth for me. That you are actively working all things, every circumstance, every ounce of pain. God, somehow you're working it. You're shaping me. You're working it for my good. Because I love you and I'm called according to your purpose. Romans 8, 28 is a beautiful promise. It doesn't mean you won't have pain. It means that God is going to work in the pain. He's going to help make you and shape you into the man or woman that he wants you to be. And so we're not going to be cowards and we're not going to run away from the pain. But we're also not going to act like it doesn't hurt. We're going to be real. See, Gethsemane means olive press. And again, going back to this whole idea of the olive tree, it was literally a place of crushing. This is what the word Gethsemane means, olive press, a place of crushing. Now that brings new significance to Isaiah 53, 5. Listen to this through that lens. He was wounded for our transgressions. This is, this is literally the, the, the words. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes or by his stripes we're healed. This is what Jesus did for you. Here in the garden Jesus begins to feel the crushing weight of my sin. He carries on his shoulders the weight of your sin. Now you may say, Wayne, I'm not a believer. Maybe you're here and you've never been saved. You're not a follower of Jesus. This is, this is the insanity of not following Jesus. He still took the weight of your sin to the cross. He died for you. He died for you. Here's what this means. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is sufficient to save every man, woman, boy, and girl on the planet, past, present, future. It's sufficient But here's the the thing that's so complicated and difficult for us to grasp. We have to embrace his grace. We have to turn from us. This is all we got to do. We don't work for it. We can't earn it. We're not good enough. Jesus did the work on the cross, but I do have to acknowledge that his work was good enough. So I turn from sin and self and I turn to Jesus and I say, Lord, I want to depend on your work on the cross for my salvation. I, I, I want to follow you. And that decision is a decision of repentance. This is, I know it sounds like a churchy word. This is what the gospel is all about. And so when we turn to Jesus, ultimately what happens is we're acknowledging that he has done the work. He took the weight of my sin to the cross. But even in this moment of, of preparation and initiation into the, the, the 24-hour process that would lead him to 
Calvary, Jesus feels the, the crushing weight that begins to press against him. So we see the agony of Jesus. But then secondly, I want you to see the betrayal of Judas. This is going to be super quick because we dealt a lot with Judas last week. And, and we don't need to spend an awful lot of time here because I want to get to our final um, group. But it's important for us to remember that this unthinkable act of betrayal was not a whim. This was not, this was not some you know, quick uh, you know, momentary weakness uh, that led to an uncharacteristic mistake. Judas started on a path that led to betrayal. He took a step, and then he took another step, and then he took another step. This was premeditated and initiated by Jesus, Judas. We talked about that last week. Judas initiated the conversation. He said, hey, how much you give me if I turn Jesus over to you? So this was premeditated and initiated. And, and before we beat Judas up, listen, every time we sin, it's a process we take a step. We take another step. Most of the time, our sin is premeditated and initiated by us. Now, I know there are times where you might find an exception where it's just this momentary slip up. You made a mistake or whatever. Most of the time, sin is a slow fade. That song by Casting Crown, it's a slow fade. Just like sanctification. Man, if you, if you get saved today, let's say you follow Jesus today. You make a decision to follow Jesus, man, you're not going to be at the finish line tomorrow. It's a process of sanctification. What's that look like? One step in front of the other, in front of the other, in front of the other. Living for Jesus is not an event. It's a process. And he grows us in grace. We become the men and women that he wants us to be. And so with Judas, he just started down a path it was a slow fade. And ultimately, the lack of fruit in his life led to his betrayal of Jesus. And so it's so important we understand, look, uh, the agony of Jesus. Then we see the betrayal of Judas. And then finally, let's, let's quickly look at the third group of people. And that is the confusion of the disciples. I think the disciples definitely get a bad rap. Um, but I think that the truth of the matter is we're all very much like them. When we see them, we see ourselves, if we're honest. One of the greatest evidences of the accuracy of the gospel record of Jesus is the fact that the gospel records the disciples as a bunch of misfits who are confused all the time. You may say, well, how does that add to the legitimacy of the gospel? Because people who write history obviously would, would present themselves in the best light. And if they were making up a story about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, they would have told this fictitious story with them being the heroes of the narrative. There's no doubt. I mean, there's no way they would have time after time, four different authors, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, all telling this story. And in all four gospels, the disciples are a bunch of knuckleheads, man. I mean, they just don't get it. They're confused all the time. They make ridiculous decisions. Jesus is telling them uh, one thing and they're hearing another. And then, and then at the, at the, when we look at the passage even, in particular, 
uh, Luke 22, and then reiterated in Matthew 26, 56, it says they all left him. All the disciples left Jesus and fled. And so when, when Judas betrayed Jesus and they're taking Jesus captive and they're about to lead him away, sure, Peter took out the sword and cut off Malchus's ear. Jesus scolded him, healed Malchus's ear. Would have been really cool to see that, right? But even at the end of that, Jesus, Jesus just gets led away and the scriptures say they all left him. They all left him. These disciples were super confused. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know where to go. They, they had no idea. And so if they were trying to make up, this is what some secularist would say about the gospel record and the supernatural nature of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. They would say that somehow maybe the disciples just made up a story that maybe didn't really rise from the dead or raise from the dead. He just, uh, you know, so they just wanted to make up the story. Oh, hey, maybe he ascended to heaven. That way we don't have to show his body after, after some time. They discount that 400 people recorded having seen the, the body, resurrected body of Jesus. All those things aside, I think one of the coolest things that are evidences of the historical legitimacy of the scriptures is the disciples actually tell the truth about themselves. They're just a bunch of, they're just a bunch of misfits. They're just a bunch of people who didn't deserve the God-man Jesus they're just a bunch of people like me and you who messed up more than they got it right yet Jesus in his grace still offered them forgiveness of their sins so the agony of Jesus the betrayal of Judas but the confusion of the disciples kind of leads us to a couple of takeaways I want to give you if you got a pen or if you want to type them in your notes, I, I just think these are helpful, not just in this story, but in, in the days ahead as you're thinking about contemplating, especially the next seven days from Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday. Let's consider these, these points. We find true victory in the Son when we stop trying to make the plan of the Father fit our imperfect expectations. I think last Sunday, even in the whole idea of the upper room and the triumphal entry, you remember as they came in, the triumphal entry, they wanted to make him king. They had great expectations, but they weren't God's expectations. I just wonder how many of us need to trade our great expectations for God's expectations for us. How many of us have been just looking at all that we're dealing with and all the agony and the pain and struggle we're going through? Maybe we're trying to hide it. Maybe we come here and we try to act like we're perfect, which is so insane. That's not a place to come and fake it till you make it, man. It's not a place to come and act like you've got it all together. This is a hospital for your soul. This is a place where you're real with God, where you just, you just come broken. You say, God, would you put the pieces back together? It's okay to agonize here. Let this be your garden. The spiritual rest we seek for our souls is only found when our fear and confusion is traded for trust and surrender. I don't know what you're going through, man, I don't have any idea, but I know this. 
There are times where we have no idea what to do. We're confused, just like these disciples. We get so confused by the culture around us, by circumstances, by the struggle, by the just personal life, the stuff that happens. We don't really know which way is up sometimes, but here's what I want to remind you of today. That no matter the pain, no matter the struggle, no matter what you face, you can trust the Lord with it. And you can give it to him. You can surrender to him. You don't have to be defined by the fear. Don't let the pain overwhelm you. Don't stop in the valley. Don't camp in the agony. Walk through it in the power of Jesus Christ. It'd be one thing if Jesus just taught us how to die. That's something we don't want to hear. We want to be followers of Jesus. I always say this, but when you're following Jesus, where did Jesus go? Jesus went to the cross. So if you're following Jesus, you must die to yourself. But it, you know what? Jesus didn't just stop at death. We're going to celebrate in seven days that he rose from the dead. And so today, maybe you've gotten the part right about dying to yourself. <laughs> maybe you're living in that death. Let me encourage you to stand up and walk out of the garden. Walk out of the tomb. We'll celebrate this next week. But you don't have to live defeated. There is agony in defeat. But the agony that you're facing, the agony that you're owning, I hope and pray it's the agony of victory. Because there is an agony that is Sometimes a suffering that is part of the will of God for our lives. I want to encourage you to keep pressing through. Lord, we love you. God, I thank you for every man, woman in this room. Lord, we thank you more than anything that you've given us a hope. God, you've not just called us to a religion. You've not just called us to a church building. (laughs) But you've called us to a savior. Lord, you've not left us in our agony, but God, you've given us strength and power to continue to press. God, help us when we are crushed that we would remember this story, God, of of Christ in the garden, Lord, that we would press on in your will and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me?